Welcome to the snooze button. Hey, I'm Brittany of Brittany She and Sleep. I've got 99 problems, but my kid's sleeping isn't one. Hey, you guys, we are back with another amazing course confidential guest episode. Okay, so my guest today is really, really exciting. She's a friend of mine and she is an obstetrician, a gynecologist, awesome person, really good at karaoke. Um, and she, this one, I posted about this on Instagram. You guys were really, really pumped and had a lot of questions. Um, so I think this is going to be a really valuable one. Whether you are expecting nursing in the weeds with all of this stuff, Marilee, Kiernan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I forgot that you like casually like swim across the ocean. That's another thing maybe I should have dropped in. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background and I think most importantly, like what made you want to go into medicine as a field in general and then specifically why you wanted to be an OB? All right. Hi, guys. I am a listener as well, so this is really exciting. Um, so I went into med- – I'm from New York, East Coaster. Um, I always was interested in science growing up, so I think kind of pre-med came from there. I thought it would be really cool to be able to combine your interest in science in a way that would help people. So I knew I wanted to go into medicine, but I actually thought I was going to go into orthopedic surgery because, as Brittany mentioned, I was a swimmer growing up. So my limited experience with medicine and and most healthy young women's little limited experience with medicine, um, which is through sports stuff. So I thought orthopedic surgeons were like the coolest thing. They are actually pretty cool. Um, But then when I went to medical school, I fell in love with OBGYN in my rotation. I just felt like meeting women where they are in whatever phase of life that is. So whether it's like your first pap smear, I'll take a lot of time to explain what that is, show them a speculum, try to like ease you know, nerves and a fear, whether... That is so nice because I feel like that... I'm just remembering being like 16 or whatever you do that. It's so stressful. And they're usually not very... They're just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I think that's a big problem. So trying to do... I love adolescent health for that reason, like empowering women to know about their bodies um, because the public school system has certainly failed many of us. Um... But yeah, whether it's you that. Mean the video that you watched that was from like 1970 <laughs> that oh. that didn't like teach you about everything? Or the Our Bodies Ourselves book? Uh, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> that that's good. my favorite things. Yeah. Um, and then empowering women like when they get to the reproductive age, like about birth control choices and things like that. I just thought that was really cool. And then honestly, I'm not going to lie, delivering babies is really, really fun. Okay. So I have like uh, now hearing that when you did your rotations, the obstetrician, the gynecology was the most exciting. What was the rotation that you were like, that is the hardest of hard passes? Um, I think internal medicine, I would say. Um, I I was going to say psych as my gut instinct, but I actually think there's a lot of psychology in a lot of, in any medicine, especially in my field. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say internal medicine. The reason I was going to say psych is I'm very procedural. I'm very hands-on. I like to do procedures, surgeries, whatever it is. And we didn't really get that in either of those rotations. Internal medicine is just like very, um... A lot of like just reading articles and rounding and writing notes. I felt like I wasn't like tangibly doing anything. Like I'd like to yeah. like be a hands-on. Because that's really what like if you have like a doctor, that's that is kind of what they do is they like check you out and they're like, mm, you should go see this type of doctor, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They like send you to a specialist. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a, an amazing job and I don't want to take away from internists. They're like the backbone of the medical society. Yeah. But um, I just want to get my hands dirty and OB is like – very much about that. <laughs> uh, literally, like, hands bloody, actually. Yeah. Um, no, it's, you know, each person has their thing. That, that totally makes sense. Um, so 
I think what's what's cool is you you have this background, but you also are a mom. So can you tell us a little bit about your own like pregnancy and birth experiences as and maybe how that um, felt different for you being an OB and like knowing so much? Like, did that make it easier or did that make it like way harder because you knew everything that could go wrong and all that stuff? I think harder in a way because especially when you're – my first pregnancy was at the end of residency. And when you're in residency is kind of like the most acute time for most people's training. You see all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, I trained at Mount Sinai in New York, and we rotated at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens and Jackson Heights, which is one of the most diverse um, neighborhoods in the country. So we saw all sorts of things. Even in our – Don't they have, like, 18 languages that are spoken? It's, like, right off the Jamaica stop. I heard Mm -hmm. that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, the best food in the city, by the way, low-key. Um, so that was kind of a crazy time to be pregnant because, of course, and then Mount Sinai is a tertiary referral center. So you would get people sent in from all over the city, all over the state with crazy complications. So it's hard not to think about that. Um, but then. Oh, because you were actively pregnant while you were like, obviously it's your job, but like you were literally like seeing all these like unique, strange, like scary things. And you're like, hmm, I hope this doesn't happen to me. Exactly. Yeah. And then I was like weirdly low key about not going to my prenatal appointments because I would just like ultrasound myself and then like <laughs> take my blood pressure occasionally. So I don't know, the dichotomy of that. That would have been my dream. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay. And we have to talk quickly about your your ocean swimming because that's just going to be so interesting to people like how I know you're a swimmer growing up and obviously like that's why but like what what motivates you to swim you have to tell them about Catalina you swam yeah explain it because I don't I don't so honestly kept me sane in residency honestly just going back to that time in my life but um I swam growing up I swam in high school and um I swam in college, um, and then after, it's weird, like, your whole life is this one thing. I spent, like, 20 hours a week doing it, and then you just graduate from college, and it's like, oh, you're done. And it was so weird for me. I just wasn't ready to, like, give it up. It gave me structure. It gave me release. Um, and so, like, someone asked me, actually, to do a swim leg of a triathlon, and I was like, yeah, I could do that in the Hudson River Sleepy Hollow try, actually. And then I was like, I wonder if I could do this whole thing, like, the running part yeah. and the biking part. So then I got into that. I got into triathlon first. And then I kind of, like, found my way. And then I, I eventually did an Ironman. And people who do Ironmans are nuts, obviously. And a lot of them were talking about these, like, crazy swims. So transitioning, like, the ultra-endurance facet into a swimming. So then I swam the English Channel um, a year after college. Um, and then there's this thing called the Triple Crown of Open Water Swimming, which is the English Channel, the Manhattan Marathon, which I also did, and then the Catalina Channel, which I just recently did. Um, and now I live in California. I was like, I have to do the Catalina totally. Channel. This is my to. one thing. But then I got pregnant when I was training, which is crazy because I my first baby was IVF. I had a really hard time getting pregnant, which we can get into as well. So I've been on both sides of the coin. As a patient, I had a really hard time getting pregnant. And then, you know, I was finding my groove. My baby was like one and I wasn't even thinking about it. And I wound up getting pregnant, um, which I didn't think was possible because it took me like two years to get pregnant the first time, right when I started training for Catalina. So I had to put that on the back burner and I finally was able to do it last summer, which was amazing. Yeah, that was so cool. And a couple of us were like tracking your, uh, like where you were. And I was like, she's in the middle of the ocean. This is my worst nightmare. (laughs) So another example of just like everyone has their thing and it's so cool to see somebody else just like do their, do their awesome thing. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the IVF thing because I think this is obviously a topic that's is so important for so many women um like what is what was your IVF experience and like what 
I don't know if words of encouragement is the right thing, but there are definitely moms listening to this who are going through that right now. And like, they aren't lucky enough to have you as their doctor, but like, what should they know going through this journey? And maybe for those of us who haven't gone through IVF, how do we properly talk to a friend about that? Because you hear things, I know not to say something like, just relax and it'll happen. My friend Marilee did IVF once and the second time it happened out of nowhere. Like (laughs) definitely don't say that, but definitely don't be like, have you tried acupuncture? Um, But what what can people say? All those things. I think the biggest thing for me is I started getting trying when I was like 29. And so I, I was just so unexpected for me. I'm very healthy. All of my testing and my partner's testing was normal. I think the biggest message I'd like to relay about IVF is like, don't feel alone. Like so many more women are struggling regardless of their age. Again, I was 29. Obviously, it's more common when you're a little bit older, but just you're not alone. You know, it, it takes a long time. And it, it's hard, and I felt a lot of feelings about it. I felt like my body was failing me, which was really disappointing. Like, as a D1 athlete, you know, my body's been able to do all these amazing things. And I really don't think that's fair. I know that it's not um, me saying that isn't going to necessarily make it easier, but just know that you're not alone. I would encourage people with IVF and also with pregnancy loss to talk about it if you feel comfortable to, mm-hmm. like with your friends. Because, again, miscarriage too, one in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that both infertility and pregnancy loss are something that women are made to feel very alone and like it's their fault. It's usually not, and you're certainly not alone. So if you feel comfortable and you have people in your life that you feel okay to reach out with, mm-hmm. I'm sure more people than you think have been through one of those experiences. Totally. And I, I find this is true with things that don't even have to do with fertility, but the more when you have a, an experience that you feel alone in, the more you're able to like open up to somebody that you trust or a few people that you trust. Um, but I've had that experience with motherhood too, where like you kind of confess something that you're struggling with or that happened to you. And then people are like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. Really? And, and knowing that somebody else has gone through that. We had the same thing. We had a very early miscarriage between Teddy and Baker. And I was like, oh my God, no, I don't know anybody who's had this. And I, I think I confided in three friends and all of them had had an early miscarriage. And it was like, wow, there's so many people going through these things. Um, okay. Another couple of things that came up a lot in the questions that I wanted to make sure you had a chance to speak to. Um, not just IVF, but also egg freezing. Like, what is your take on egg freezing? Like, have you seen more patients coming to you with questions about that? And like, what is your what are your thoughts and your advice around that um, for women? You know, I think one of the biggest things that I like about my field um, is that we have a lot of options. Like, we have a lot of options in contraception. Like, it's definitely no not one size fits all. I think egg freezing, if it's an option for you financially, insurance-wise, it makes sense with your life, mm-hmm. is a great option. Um, the biggest thing with it is it ex- ex- it's expensive, and it's not usually covered by insurance. The tech companies are great. So if you work for, like, a Google, a Facebook, an Apple, definitely go ahead and look into it. It's actually... I think it's not as scary or a big of a deal as people think it is. So it's definitely worth asking your doctor if it's something you're thinking about. I will say everyone responds differently to the medication. So if you've had an issue with a difficult response to hormones in the past, it might be a little bit more difficult for you. But it's really only like the whole process is only like a month. Hmm. So it's actually not – I've kind of been through it because IVF is a similar process. Um, for me, it was a very straightforward process. But I would say if it's – an option available to you, it's worth exploring because it's basically like a backup plan. You may not ever use those eggs or embryos or whatever, but if, if it's financially and physically feasible for you, which absolutely it's not for everybody, mm-hmm. um, then I think it's a great option. Okay. And one thing that I didn't realize, and I think this is so cool, I have a friend who I will keep anonymous, um, who it's a friend of a friend. I don't know her that well, but I thought this was really cool. 
the friend who knows her said that when they um, implanted the, you know, they did the IVF with like the embryos and then they implanted them or whatever, they were from two different like sessions. So technically her kids, like one of the kids is like a year quote unquote older. Like obviously they're not, like the boy isn't a year older than his sister, but they ended up having twins and the boy's, the boy's embryo was like a year older. And I thought that was so cool and like interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah, they can be in the freezer for forever, honestly. Science, <laughs> science is fun. Um, okay, thoughts on, like, I think two big, like, controversial birth things. Your thoughts on natural birth. Like, if somebody comes in and they have their, like, midwife staff with them and they want, they don't want an epidural, they don't want any medication, like, does that, is that a, a good thing to you, a bad thing? Like, does it change how you respond through their labor, like, that kind of stuff? I think the birth experience is so personal and everybody's birth is different and everyone's like reaction to that is different. And I, that's something I feel like I really learned more when I was in it, like as a patient, not as a provider. Um, I, I am a big fan of doing whatever you feel empowers you. If you've done the training, I would definitely, if you want to do that, do like a bunch of reading or birth class or prep, prep. Um, I've seen a lot of good stuff with like the Bradley method, stuff like that. But I am a, because I'm coming from a place of safety from my training, I really strongly believe in birth in hospitals or in a birth center that has access to a hospital because, to be quite frank, like, shit can hit the fan really fast. Right. So as long as you're monitored, you're in a safe place where people can respond to obstetrical emergencies, then I'm do whatever, you know? As long as you're safe and your baby's safe, I don't care what you do. Like, I want totally. you to be happy, but I want you to be safe. Totally. Yeah, it is crazy how quickly things can change. Um that's a really good point. Um, postpartum support, I want to touch on quickly because I know you're really passionate about like advocating for the needs and rights of women, you know, in labor and afterwards and all of that. Um, and like, where do you feel like there are gaps in like how we treat women, you know, both as an as a mom and as an as an OB? Um, and what could we be doing differently to like support women? Because to me, it feels like, and this is somebody who doesn't thankfully of all my many issues um depression isn't one of them and i mean even when i get that checklist at you know the doctor's appointment it's like are you depressed check yes or no like <laughs> there's got to be people checking no because they don't know that what they're experiencing isn't normal or they're embarrassed to talk about it or something um so like what would you if you were running the world what would we be doing oh my god so many things differently <laughs> this is this could be a very long answer but i'll try to keep it short yeah. i mean in europe everybody gets a postpartum like midwife or doula that comes to your home and checks in on you i think that's amazing especially for first and in time canada moms. too i know a sleep consultant who does that that's like so she's, cool. she's a sleep consultant and she's a nurse who goes to people's houses in alberta canada i mean i feel like we basically have nothing for six weeks. And that's something that ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has talked about. And that's something I sir not, certainly did not appreciate till I had kids. But, like, you know, if you have a normal vaginal birth, we basically don't see you for six weeks. But that's, like, the hardest six weeks of your life. So we're actually trying to implement, like, sooner check-ins, like, at, like, two weeks or so. Just even if it's just, like, we're not going to do, like, an exam, but, like, just a mood check, see how you're doing. Um, again, I think that's where, like, your mom tribe or anyone you feel comfortable speaking to is amazing because it is really hard. Every time I see people at like the two weeks later, I'm like, how are you doing? Like this was the hardest, probably the hardest two weeks of your life. And like, congrats, you got showered today. You, got, you made it to the <laughs> totally. office. You are here. Like that is a huge accomplishment. And that's definitely not how I approach the postpartum visit prior to having kids. I was going to say, now that you have kids, I feel like when I, I, w- I was actually seeing a friend, we were in Colorado last weekend and I, I was with a friend who has a two week old. And like my thing was, I didn't want to like see the baby. I was, I was like, 
are you okay? Like, what do you need to like? Do you need anything? Like, do you want to, to cry? Do you want to talk? Like, do you want food? It's like when you've been a mom, you know when you've been you have a one week old, like you're wearing a diaper. Like, oh yeah, things are not normal. <laughs> totally. You're like, can I just take a shower? Yeah. Like, that's the, yeah. I think the nicest thing is like if you're a mom friend, if someone else has a newborn, be like, do you want me to hold the baby while you just like shower? You yeah, know what I mean? Because totally. then they feel you don't want them to. You want to check on your friends, but you don't want them to feel like they have to entertain you in this like yes. shell of a human state that they're in. So just, I mean, everyone has different needs, but like little things like that, you know, wonderful. Totally. Um, I also okay. think pelvic floor PT is really cool. Pelvic oh, floor I like know therapy. nothing about that. I need to get a, a pelvic floor person on and the And they didn't even teach us that much in medical school, but it's something I've seen more in California than I have in New York. I think that pelvic floor PT, it's like my new favorite obsession, so you're just catching me on a pelvic floor PT moment. <laughs> but I think it just teaches you how to, anything from like how to do a proper Kegel to like for C-section moms even, like scar tissue mobilization, like they do a lot of very cool stuff. So I'm like really big on pelvic floor PT right now. Okay, that's cool. I, I want to look into it more as well because um, I know it's helped a lot of people who have, you know, diastasis and all sorts of things. Um, am I saying that right, diastasis? I usually say diastasis, but I don't, Diast- think, no, I don't think there's that's a... That's a really nice way of saying you said it wrong. <laughs> I don't I actually don't think there's like a right way. I should know. I should, I should learn them. Um, okay, so my last question for you, and then I want to um, let some of the listener questions come, and then we'll talk very briefly about you working with me as a course client. Um, I think that a lot of moms, especially first-time moms, do not know how to advocate for themselves. And this was a lesson I learned the hard way and felt like very much like I was not seen, I was not heard, I was not listened to. I was all of the like, I could go on a whole tirade with my oldest. And by the time I had my third, I felt much more confident asking like, nope, I want the epidural now. Like, nope, I need this. what do you think is the best way that women can advocate for themselves and for their baby in the hospital, um, both to nurses and doctors? Like, what what could they do if they're feeling like something's off or they need something and they don't know how to say it? I always say to patients, and sometimes there are gray situations. There's a lot of gray zones in obstetrics, and I'll always put it to the patient, and I hope that more doctors will do this. Like, you know your body better than anybody else, so what do you think? Like, what's going on? You know what I mean? So this just – you can – say what's going on in your body and what you feel like this is not normal for me because the thing about such a good point because it's easy to be like it's normal to have pain and you're like i know i've been in pain for seven months but this is weird right only you know your body the best so and the problem is you know you meet your OBGYN a few times we hope to develop a relationship through the prenatal visits but like we don't know you the way like a friend or a family member knows you. So, and then get your, your if you have lucky enough to have a birth partner, get that person involved too and have, help them advocate for you too. Be like, no, like, you know, actually like she has a really high pain tolerance and this is like not normal. Right. Um, so I don't know, things like that. I think the labor nurses are, um, they're like the heroes of the labor floor, to be honest. Get your nurses involved. Most of them are really yeah. involved in check-in, anesthesia, whoever you can. It's a, it's a, t- it's very much a team effort. So mm-hmm. anyone that you can talk to that you feel comfortable to talk to, please do. And, and again, just keep in mind that you know your body better than anyone, period, always in any situation. And, and we all know that. And maybe we forget that sometimes because we're in like an emergency or running around or it's a crazy day on the labor floor. But like, that is the fact. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I also, I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that, like, I'll have a bunch of questions for a doctor, and then when I get in the room, I just forget everything. Oh, write them down. So that's I always write them down thing. now. Yeah. Make, like, a, use the notes section of your phone. Yes. Absolutely. Especially because you're exhausted, you're pregnant, you're postpartum, you haven't slept in weeks. Like, absolutely make a list. I had a Definitely. little notebook, and I still have it. So it has all three of the kids, and I tracked my weight for just with Teddy because I thought you were like I was thought I was going to become obese. I didn't. Can't see um, that happening. <laughs> yeah, but I was like I didn't know you know whatever. But I still have like my little like list of questions. Um, it's so cute. So okay, I want to talk very quickly about your experience 
taking the course. So you are a course client. We we did the baby sleep and schedule course with Quinny, your little nugget. Um, so I guess, especially as a doctor, I'm interested in if there was like anything you learned, you don't need to say what all the things are. We, we have, you know, not a ton of time, but <laughs> things you learned that maybe you were like, oh, I feel like as a doctor, I should have known that. Or like things that were surprising to you, because I feel like you have such a you have a lot more knowledge than the average parent going into something like this. Yeah, but honestly, they don't like teach you anything, anything about sleep, not much about breastfeeding, anything. I loved the course because I'm like a schedule person. I love that you were getting, well, obviously your whole thing is getting people on schedules early. But so Quinn was my second child um, and they're only 20 months apart. I didn't know Brittany with my first child or know about it and I didn't do that much prep. But like I somehow, and I think this is common, you tell me, but forgot everything in between. I think this is like intentional. The Lord Jesus upstairs has decided to make you forget so that yeah. we keep procreating. I right. really think that's like a biological thing. The human race depends yeah. on it. Yeah. Mom's forgetting the trauma. Yeah. You have to forget all of the things so that you just keep doing it. Yeah. So I like I really liked the course because then I had something tangible that I could go back to and reference um, and like different chapters and stuff like yeah. that. And like, as you guys all know, because you're her listeners, like Brittany is just like a cool, relatable person. Um, oh, and you're also it. just your own experience from having three kids too like you can't learn that in a textbook but like I think you've kind of seen it all so being able yeah. to kind of bounce everything off of you was like really really nice and you're like very funny and witty <laughs> <laughs> try my best you know I feel like when anyone who's watching it is probably in a state of disarray to some degree and the last thing you need is to be like preached at or just be really bored to tears you know because I've, t- I've taken courses for non-sleep things and been just like very bored and you know then you don't then you don't do it no. um I'm so glad I'm always honored when people in the medical field uh, become clients or take my courses because I feel like they they already know the stuff and they still we know. really don't they don't teach us anything about sleep. I, I all I knew now. was that I am a doctor who's on call. The first time I ever called, you remember I had delivered like four babies the night before, and I was like, "Hello," and you were like, "Are you okay? <laughs> you good?" And she was yeah. like, "Do you want to reschedule this?" And I was like, "No, this is why I don't want to reschedule this because sleep <laughs> is so important to me because like I do have to be up for twenty four hours sometimes with my job. So the nights that I'm not, oh I need God. to be sleeping. Like we all need to be sleeping. And I mean, you think about like it's hard for any of us to function." no sleep but I don't want somebody cutting my abdomen open no. when when they were when they were up all night with the baby that's like that's terrible it's dangerous it, it is really dangerous. it's like driving they say that like you know driving or operating with sleep deprived sleep is like driving drunk I I fully believe it yeah. um that I would it was actually the day that I went home and was like I'm going to become a sleep consultant was the day that I was sitting in a class in a mommy and me class and a woman told everyone and she started crying as she was telling us that she'd gotten in the shower that morning with all of her clothes on because she just hadn't slept in like four months. And actually, I won't divulge her name, but she became a client two years later with her next child. So I was like, this one's gonna be different. You're like, this can't happen again. (laughs) It's not gonna happen again, and it didn't. Um, Okay, amazing. So I wanna make sure we have a few minutes for, to go to some of the questions. So I picked a couple that were very different, but a ton were along the same vein. Um, So a lot were about birth control. Um, and your perspective and knowledge on this. So Jen asked, I want a temporary birth control product that isn't hormonal. I'm petrified of IUD being painful. I can't track cycles because I'm nursing right now and I don't have my period back yet. Everyone says just use condoms, but is that really my only option? I could talk about birth control all day, so Well, and while you're doing it, I'll tell you the second birth control question because maybe you'll like talk about it at the same time. Katie's question was, should we be concerned about cancer risk from birth control? So we can answer those kind of Okay, great. I love this question. So short answer to that is no. There's a lot of stuff around birth control, cancer, blood. The biggest thing that birth control is a risk of is a blood clot. However, the baseline risk of blood clots 
in the average population on not on medication is one to two in 10,000. Birth control increases it to three in 10,000. Pregnancy. So it's really not, a, yes, everyone's like, oh my God, it's doubled from one to two. But I'm like, yes, I bet it's two in 10,000. Like, right. Pregnancy, for reference, 10 in 10,000. So you're still safer being on birth control than being pregnant, just as a reference, because pregnancy. That's a really good, like, yeah. Okay. When you, whenever you're worried about that. Technically, yes, birth con- hormonal birth control, I should say contains usually when people are talking about the pill there's estrogen and progesterone although there's progesterone only pills as well estrogen in long-term risks can marginally increase your risk of breast cancer but it's seen more in women after 50 who you're usually not on birth control at that point because you're in menopause um it actually decreases your risk of ovarian and colon cancer so those are really oh wow and ovarian cancer there was no screening for so it's kind of like you may slightly increase your risk of a very detectable, screenable cancer in your 50s if you're still on birth control, which you probably won't be. But you're decreasing the risk of an un, like an unscreenable cancer, and colon cancer is really common too as well. So I think for sure the benefits outweigh the risks in birth control. Now, question of hormonal versus non-hormonal. Um, you did mention IUDs, which are kind of my favorite subject. I do have them on my keychain as a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> Such a nerd. I love it. I know. And I put them on a cocktail parties, as Brittany can, can attest. Um, IUDs, you said you're nursing. I don't know what kind of birth that you had. But if you had a vaginal birth, I can pretty much guarantee you an IUD is going to be no big deal. Like your cervix, it's, it's a little bit more difficult when you've had a C-section or never had a birth period because basically we have to get it past the cervix. But your cervix is dilated 10 centimeters when you've had a vaginal birth. Like it's it's not that hard to put in. And I happen to know because the person who asked me this, I know on a personal level and I know that she had two vaginal births. Oh, that's so. going to be no problem. <laughs> is it a little bit? It's like a little bit. It's like a period cramp. It probably takes me five minutes to put in an IUD. You maybe have a little bit of a cramp for five minutes. You may have a little spotting after, but then you're good for eight years if it's a so marina. This is basically like getting a pap smear, or not even. Yeah, yeah it's okay. a little bit more than that. But like, okay. again, everything in medicine is risk benefit. Right. The, the benefits to me very much outweigh the, the risk, especially if you're looking for non-hormonal effective. So the thing about non-hormonal is most of them are not as effective. Like condoms can break. Cycle tracking only about seventy to eighty percent effective, so that's like a twenty percent chance you have a child, which is pretty major. That feels like rolling the dice. A little yeah, bit. If it's you're a really bit trying dicey. not to get pregnant. Yeah. Um, the Paragard IUD is very effective and it's non-hormonal. It is an IUD, like we said, but it's only copper. So I think that'd be a good option for you. The other thing about, and I really want to get this point across, people having a bad reaction to hormones. IUDs are a little bit different because when you take in something by mouth, it goes everywhere through your body. It's processed by your liver. It's going through your blood just to get to the target organ of action, which is the ovaries. Usually it's ovarian suppression. But when you're using an IUD, A, the birth control pill has estrogen and progesterone. The IUD only has progesterone. Typically, estrogen is the one that makes people not feel so great, like a little bit nauseous, breast tenderness, all the things that people think of mood changes. The IUD, because it's a device that's sitting in your uterus, most in your uterus is a thick muscular wall, most of that hormone does not escape the uterus. So even people that maybe didn't tolerate oral birth control well, they typically do very well on an IUD. Now, obviously not everyone, but like I would say the vast majority do pretty well with an IUD. The other reason I love IUDs, going back to the cancer question, and I'm glad you looped these together, is that a progesterone IUD actually decreases your risk of uterine cancer. So we can even use it to regress early uterine cancer and endometrial changes with the progesterone IUD. So I actually really like it from that perspective. Again, as a third thing, and I actually could talk about IUDs forever, so Brittany's gonna have to cut me off, is that you, if you were a person with a newborn, like you have no schedule, right? Like when are you gonna take your birth control pill? Like quote unquote morning, what is morning? Like what is morning even anymore? So 
IUD, set it and forget it. Again, Mirena is good for eight years. You can obviously take it out sooner. That was my question because I think she, I'm looking back at her question, she said she wants temp because I was going to be like, have him snipped, have the guy snipped. Right. But temporary, so if you take it out and you decide in nine months you want to try for another baby, then you would be fine. Average return to fertility with an IUD is one month. Average return to fertility with a pill is three months. Oh, so it's also faster if you faster. decide all of a sudden you desperately need to have another child. Okay. Yes. Got it. And the removal is very easy. The insertion's a little bit crampy. The removal's like pulling out a tampon. It's really no big deal. Okay, listener Jen, I think you're probably going to end up with an IUD. I will be following up via text in a few weeks to find out what you decided. Um, okay, so a lot of questions also came up. I get so, and I hear about this all the time. I'm sure you do, even as just like a mom, about C-sections and inductions. And I'm saying this as a mom who was induced three times and had vaginal births. So, yay. yay. <laughs> it was great. So I'm like very pro-induction. I basically tricked my OB into inducing me for my third because I was just done being pregnant. Just FYI, just between you and me. I know. I've, between I've, you and me I've and everyone like listening. I've told patients to do that. Like, I'm like, I'm actually done. Just and you're fine. <laughs> I probably have cholestasis. Just do it. Um, but Maggie said, I'm 40 weeks and being pressured to have an induction. But the idea of a C-section really freaks me out. Is it true that inductions usually equal C-sections and do doctors prefer doing C-sections? So I'm so glad you asked that because I think this is such a big misconception. This is like such a big misconception. So inductions. I had an elective induction my first pregnancy because I love inductions. I think it's very <laughs> civilized. Like I like wash my also hair. Also love them. Took a nap. We're schedule people. Obviously, yep. you know when you're coming in. So, but the question of increased C-sections is something that is a very good question and been bounced around the medical community for a very long time. But there was a really big study um, with thousands of patients that came out a couple years ago, ago called the ARRIVE trial. And if you're kind of like a science nerd or in the weeds, you should absolutely look it up. ARRIVE, just A-R-R-I-V-E, the ARRIVE trial. And it looked at first-time moms at thir- inducing them at 39 weeks versus awaiting whenever they went into labor. And that could have been at any time. Um and the study showed that the induction group actually had a lower C-section rate, which was wow. shocking. The reason being is that... And you that feel like this is a good... It was a good sample set, like a good... A good it was a know. great study. Yeah, I great think study. Emily Oster has talked about it. We'll have to look yeah, at that, yeah. our data queen. Yep. Um, but it was a very strong study, and it, it, made, it made me want to be induced. Um, so what it... What I think it shows... The reason that they're not really sure why that was, but basically if you're 40 weeks... First of all... When you're past 41 weeks, the stillbirth rate goes up. So, in again, risk benefit. Right. I keep telling people There's that. There's no I'm like, reason to risk that. It's like, not your like baby's fully impressive. formed. It's not a good thing if you're at 32 or at 42 weeks and no. still waiting for a baby. No, because good. your placenta doesn't work as well after your due date. So, everything is a risk benefit. Induction's are so benign. And, again, lower risk of C-section. The reason that they think probably in the ARRIVE trial that rate was higher without induction is that people probably had C-sections for – non-reassuring fetal heart rates at that time because the placenta just doesn't work as well. Babies don't tolerate labor and they get bigger. Like a baby at 42 weeks is obviously going to be much bigger than a baby at 39 weeks. And so when babies are very big, they're harder to deliver. It's not rocket science. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I don't want that. And then also just going back to the question of do we like C-sections? No. So we actually, in most hospitals. Why? People are so paranoid about this. They're like, no, my doctor is dying, to, is dying to give me a C-section. They I'm think like, we're out to cut people. We're I, not. I think they think that you either like surgery or what I hear more I is like, I do like surgery, oh, but I'll do hysterectomies. I bet she wants to go on vacation. And so she wants me to come in on Tuesday. I'm like, this feels like, I, I don't think this is what's happening. So but most maybe. of us are in a really big group practice. I'm with nine other doctors. I'm on call when I'm on call. It doesn't matter like how many people 
people deliver on my time, whatever. Like, <laughs> someone just picks up the call. If you're still in labor, you go on to someone else's shift. It doesn't matter to me. Secondly, it's more work for me to do a surgery at 2 in the morning. I'd much rather just sit there and have you push out the baby. Like, it's much <laughs> do easier the, Do the work for me, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but thirdly, so this is the more serious point. There is a problem with increasing C-section rates in this country, and it, that's a complicated issue, and it's multifactorial. People are having kids later. There's more hypertension, preeclampsia. It, it's a complicated reason. But hospitals and ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, is trying to swing back the other way to get that rate down because it is absolutely better for people to have vaginal deliveries. Most hospitals, my hospital included, actually track your C-section rate and we get reported. So when we take the boards, when we apply to get board certified, you have to submit your C-section rate. And if your C-section rate is high, they will ding you for it. So you actually get in trouble with the board if you do too many C-sections. The hospital additionally tracks it. And if you have a number that's higher than what they think is appropriate or like your area average or appropriate for your patient population, they will call you in and like yell at you. You actually, and then thirdly, our hospital, this is kind of cool. This is kind of new. You actually get a bonus for doing less C-sections, like for doing a lower That's rate. amazing. Yeah. So like all across the board, no, we're not trying to cut people. It's, we no. know it's harder. That sounds like you have like professional incentive, a financial incentive, yeah. like everything. Just, everything. Yeah. Laziness. I'll just like sit in your bed and, and catch your baby instead of like doing a surgery. Right. <laughs> right. And at the same time, obviously, if somebody needs it, you are more than willing to do of it. Of course. Safety um, first, always. Safety first, always. Okay. Um, last question, Aaron asked, how has becoming a mom changed your perspective on pregnancy and birth? Has it impacted how you treat patients? Hi, Aaron. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely. I think, you know, we talked about this with the postpartum visit too. I used to just be like, you're okay, you're healing great, you're done, you're cleared. And like realizing that like just because you're physically cleared or things are physically healed doesn't mean you're like, you're never the same person as you are before. You're not necessarily ready for things. Um Going through breastfeeding is something they don't teach you, like, at all in medicine, and that's such a difficult journey for so many totally. people. Um, and then just, like, having compassion. I think my biggest takeaway is having compassion for people's either fertility journey or birth journey. Like, in medicine, you're just trained, like, healthy mom, healthy baby, you did your job, great. Like, if you can avoid a C-section, also great because it's better for women to deliver vaginally. But in residency, you deliver people and, and maybe someone had like what they felt was a traumatic birth experience and you felt like it was nothing out of the ordinary, like be compassionate. Like maybe that's not what they wanted. Like maybe they were really hoping for vaginal and they needed a C-section. And like I had a C-section too, by the way, and I was devastated. It took me months to recover from it. And it was not an emergency. It was totally the right thing, the right call. And I knew it. I just stopped dilating at five centimeters. It's fine. I like went open above and beyond with Pitocin and gave myself everything and it just wasn't and I knew it wasn't happening um but I cried on my way to the OR until my I would have too I totally yeah and so in as a resident if I looked at you know my birth and been like well she just stopped dilating she was in labor for like a day and a half and nothing happened she got a c-section like whatever she's healthy baby's healthy and I am I'm thankfully completely fine my baby's completely fine it wasn't an emergency it was totally controlled we put music on it was fine but I was really disappointed. I felt like somehow less than, less than a mother, like not as good of an OBGYN because I didn't have a vaginal birth. I just was like really in my head about it and kind of having compassion for people that, or even if they had a vaginal birth, but they something happened and, and they were, just weren't happy. It didn't go the way they wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. Having compassion for that because it's a really big moment in your life and you put so much pressure on it. And of course, keep the perspective that you do want to just have a healthy mom, healthy baby, but like understanding that people's disappointment if they don't have the birth that they want. It sucks. It's a bummer. 
Totally. And in a lot of ways, like if you are fortunate enough to have not had, you know, some sort of other like a physical trauma or something, it's also the time in your life I felt it was like when I was at my most vulnerable. Right. It's like you're basically like strapped down and like, you know, you're about to have push a person out of your body or be cut open. And like there's all these people around telling you what to do and you're hooked up to a million things. It's really like intimidating and vulnerable, even if everything is going, quote unquote, perfectly. Um, and for most women, like they haven't been in that position before. So it's just like a lot. It's a it's lot. such an unnatural position. Yeah. I mean, even with a C-section, like you're lying there on an operating table awake. It's the only surgery we so do wild. awake. Like you're just supposed to sit there and be calm while they like lift your organs out of your body. Like I definitely had to put music on and be, like breathe through it. And I've done like a thousand C-sections, but I'm like, this is very freaky, especially because like I knew exactly what I they were saying, doing. I, I think it'd be easier to not know. I was like, yeah. I want you to use this type of suture on this layer. And I want oh my you to God. close this layer. And they were like, okay, Karen, yeah, they're you like, shut up. This is my worst nightmare. Like, <laughs> get her out of here. I'm sure it's a nightmare operating on an OB, for sure. Uh, I love it. Um, okay, and the last little question I will ask you that we didn't touch on, um, a person didn't ask, but I think it would be good for us to all know and think about. There's obviously been a lot of conversation about how women of color are treated differently, black, black women specifically in the United States, during the birth process. And I'm wondering if this is something you have encountered and how you handle it if you have cl- if you have clients i mean if you have uh, patients who are black and if yeah basically you're like take on that whole thing because i it's very it's, i get very upset when i think about it's it. an absolute travesty in this country and systemic racism is real and it's present everywhere unfortunately you know we we are in california and i trained in new york and we think that we're like immune from that but it's it's really not um, I think it's important to be, I think going down to advocating for yourself, it's important to just be really explicit. Like I had a patient, a young black woman who's perfectly healthy and she came in and she was like, listen, so I'm a first time mom. Like I'm scared. What do you make of these numbers? You know, I was like, it's, it's horrifying. You're absolutely right. And, but I was so happy she brought it up because it's the kind of oh, thing. Oh, she brought up like she the issue. Up. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. She's like, what's the deal with like black women dying in labor? All, yeah. Like so much more than they Good need for to. Her. And I was really like taken aback by that, but I was like really kind of like encouraged by her initiating the conversation because it's the hard thing for us to talk about because I think it's a huge failure of our system um but again if you can I think maybe if if we can initiate the conversation your doctors more that would be good and I've started to do that with patients Mm -hmm. I'd be like listen you know what I I may want to be more conservative here because black women have a higher risk of x whether it's like Mm preeclampsia or whatever there's obviously difference in all sorts of medical things and I'm like we're gonna take the conservative route because guess what black women die more in this situation and like we don't want that, you know? Yeah. And just yeah. be really, tra- like, for advice to other doctors, she's like, just be really transparent about why you're doing stuff. And for patients, too, like, ask about it. Like, press people on it. They should, if they're not thinking about it, they should be. So I think it's totally, it's great to bring it up and kind of to ask about what they think about it. Yeah. And I feel like with a lot of these types of topics, the more we just talk about it and people are aware of it, the more likely we are to have some type of positive change happen. Um, okay, this has been amazing. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I feel like this is going to be a very popular episode because you are just a wealth of knowledge. Um, I love it. Thanks again, Marilee. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. Loving the snooze button? Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And please leave a review. I will read it and internalize it, so make sure it's very glowing. If you're interested in working with me or learning more about my courses, head to brittanysheehan.com or follow me on Instagram at Sleep.